This year we're observing the 150th birth anniversary of Swami Abedananda, a direct disciple and the third spiritual leader of this center. The Swami came to New York at the specific request of Swami Vivekananda in August 1897, and for the next 23 years, very successfully expounded on Vedanta and Hindu thought and culture throughout the United States until his return to India in 1921. In commemoration of this 150th anniversary, we're holding the Swami Abedananda Lecture Series in Religion and Philosophy. This morning, we are honored to welcome as the fourth speaker in this series, Professor Edwin Bryant, Professor of Religions of India at Rutgers University. Professor Bryant received his PhD in the Indic languages and cultures from Columbia University and taught Hinduism at Harvard University for three years. He has published eight books and authored a number of articles on Vedic history, yoga, and the Krishna tradition. His highly regarded translation of and commentary on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali have been followed by his most recent work entitled Bhakti Yoga, Tales and Teachings from the Bhagavata Purana. In addition to his academic course load, Professor Bryant currently teaches workshops on the Yoga Sutras, Bhagavad Gita, and Hindu philosophy at yoga studios and teacher training courses throughout the country. At the end of his talk, um, he will open it up for a Q&A when you, you can ask questions. Um, so it's a great pleasure to be here in this very august place, a very special place, actually, in terms of the uh, transplantation of Hinduism to America, um, perhaps the most venerable site, right? Is, not, is this not the first Vedanta center? So it has a whole uh, history, and, um, and we see that a little bit reflected here, the way it's set up with the organ, and a little bit like a Protestant church. Um, because bearing in mind, 100 years ago, you know, now Hinduism is cool, right? People have tattoos of Ganesh on their back, and, uh, but a hundred years ago, uh, someone like uh, Swamiji, who was really a communicator, he wasn't a, a Patanjalian yogi sitting in a cage, uh, in a cave, Chittavriti Narodaing. So his intention was to spread um, uh, the, the teachings of Hinduism and um, give some dignity, actually, to Hinduism. Um, and so, we had to find ways of, of, of creating a space where, which, which as much as possible resonated with existing Western culture. So, um, and so therefore the organ music, and I, I've been to the center in, in Boston, which is much more like a church actually, you have pews. Um, so to, you know, so to, to create a sense that, which of course the teachings of Advaita Vedanta, which is that, you know, that there is a truth that underpins all religions. And to kind of stress that a little bit by minimizing um, the cultural differences, even in, in terms of the, the space. So I hope you keep it that way, uh, because it's really a, a reflection of a very important moment in, in, in historical time, in terms of Hinduism's journey to the West. 
So, um, so I'm, I'm here to speak a little bit about uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. That's what happens when you write a book. <laughs> you get associated with that book and then invited to speak on the book. Um, so, uh, Yoga Sutras is, is one of a number of uh, sutra texts that emerge from the <coughs> late Upanishadic period. So we have the Upanishads, which, is, which are the kind of oldest texts where we find philosophical, the beginnings of philosophical discourse, the beginnings of spirituality. The earlier texts are more ritualistic texts, the earlier Mimamsa texts. Um, but they're not systematized, they're not systematic texts. They're poetic expressions. You get a sense of practitioners in the forests, engaging in practice, coming out of meditative states, and saying something, right? Uh, and trying to express their experiences through metaphors. Um, different rishis are there, expressing different sorts of things. In some places, Brahman is depicted as a personal being. In other places in the Upanishads, an impersonal being in some places. The Upanishads seem to suggest that the world is an illusion in other places that it's real. In some places, Atman is somehow merges into Brahman, right? The Tattvamasi, the famous verses, other places seem to su uh, suggest a distinction. And as a result of that, non-systematic nature of the Upanishads, um, <clears throat> in, the, in the late Upanishadic period, you get this sense that there is a need amongst Indian intellectuals to systematize um, the ancient teachings. Now, maybe because of the threat of Buddhism that's challenging certain long-held Vedanta views on the, nation, or the notion of the Atman. Maybe it's the sense of the Kali Yuga. If you read the beginning of the Puranas, many of the Puranas start off by saying it's the Kali Yuga and the effects of this age are detrimental to the preservation of knowledge. Knowledge is getting lost and um, or maybe falling into the wrong hands and can be misrepresented. So you get this sense to sort of preserve, fossilize, and systematize, which I think is reflected in the whole uh, uh, sutra genre of writing. So at this point, you get a number of uh, sutra texts that are written. Um, uh, Vedanta Sutra, of, of course, the, the, the um, Vedanta Society uh, is obviously... Um, anchored in the Vedanta Sutras. Uh, same, same thing, Badarayana comes along, a sage called, uh, called um, Badarayana comes along and tries to systematize these heterogeneous teachings of the Upanishads, tries to codify them, put them in a systematic uh, format. Of course, um, does that work? Uh, the sutras are so cryptic. They're so incomprehensible that you can't actually read sutras. Uh, so then you have to have read the commentaries on the sutras, and of course, then you read the commentaries, and then pretty soon you have um, major diverge uh, divergences in the, in the commentarial tradition ongoing. So um, at the same time, you have, um, in the Upanishads, you have a few references to this thing called yoga. Not very many. There's a passage in the Shvetashvatara. Uh, there's a passage in the Kata, a few lines here and there, uh, referring to this thing called yoga. 
Um, and so mostly the Upanishads are, are presenting inform descriptive. They're describing, they're saying there is this thing called Brahman and, that, and Atman, and that we are Atman, we are Brahman in some sort of way. But there's not that much of a um, discussion in the Upanishads about, okay, fine, so we're Atman, we're Brahman, well, what do we do about that? Right, let's say we accept that information. Well, what do we do? Uh, just the fact that we know, okay, I'm Atman, fine, I'll sign off on that, I'll subscribe to that, now what? I'm not enlightened. Right? So what's the next step? So, uh, so in the Upanishads, you get these early, a few references to this thing called yoga, which, act, which is actually a practice uh, uh, by which one can uh, experience, attain uh, that thing which is being described in, in the Upanishads, experience Atman and, and Brahman. Um, but not just a few verses. The yogis described as sitting, you know, as um, living in a, in a cave next to a body of water. Um, <clears throat> and not, he has to create a seat, not too high, not too low. Just a few references here and there. Um, so, uh, so just as um, Sage Bhadarayana, this in intellectual, intellectual yogi, we can say, there's no, we, we have no reason... Um, and the great intellectuals of ancient India were often uh, serious practitioners. They weren't just intellectuals. So just as Bhadarayana writes the Vedanta Sutra to try to give some consistency to the disparate teachings of the Upanishads, another sage called Patanjali emerges at some point, and of course scholars try to date, uh, to date these personalities, and we don't need to get involved in that. There's always differences of opinion, how you d date someone like Patanjali. So someone uh, called Patanjali comes along and he writes a, the Yoga Sutra. Well, uh, and you know, establishes right in the beginning, Atta Yoga Anu Shasanam, that he is going to now continue, Anu Shasanam, continue the teachings of uh, yoga, which, uh, as I say, are mentioned in the uh, Upanishads, mentioned in the Mahabharata epic, if you, look, if you read the Mahabharata, when the Pandavas are exiled to the forest, they're 12 year, years in the forest, so scattered through the forest, you see these characters, these, these proto-yogis with the dreadlocks, right? And they're, they're not obviously the, the protagonists of the story, but they're there. And they're always associated, the term yoga is always associated with intense austerity, tapas, um, with some, some form of dhyana, some form of concentrative exercise, and frequently powers, that with this intense control of the mind comes power. So the yogis are often scary, slightly scary characters. Um, especially, actually, if you think, you know, um, all of the great asuras, the great asuras of ancient India, how did they get their powers? You know, Ravana and Hiranyakasipu. They did Ekapada Hastasana. They did these incredible yogic feats and concentrated their minds, and and as a result of that, uh, it uh, attained their cities, their powers. So that's that's actually if you, that's actually probably why Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra he has a whole the third chapter on mystic powers, and then he says, but these are of no interest to real yogis. But why does he say that? 
Why spend a quarter of the text talking about mystic powers and then just say, well, they're of no interest? Well, because there were characters in ancient India that were doing something that looked very much like yoga from the outside, engaging in intense tapas, concentrating their minds, and they had no interest in, in the real goal of yoga, which we'll discuss in a minute. As a matter of fact, they weren't even benevolent, some of them. They were malevolent beings. They, they were asuras. So, therefore, in, uh, as a matter of fact, Patanjali, in the fourth chapter, the first verse, he, he says these cities, these cities you, can you can get them from samadhi, but then he says there's four other ways you can get them. You can get them from mantra, you can get them from oshadi, some kind of plant, right? They're like that on the low east side. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the only verse they, they, they remem remember. So, hi, Professor Brian, what, what's the oshadi in the chapter four? Uh, and you can get it from tapas. You can get these cities from, from tapas. So, uh, so these practices are there. Uh, we see them also in the Ramayana, uh, also when Ram is in the forest, in the background. The yogis are there, here and there, scattered. So sort of common denominator of them all is uh, uh, ascetics, A-S-C, ascetics, um, performing uh, intense forms of austerity, involving some kind of pranayama, some kind of breath control, and some kind of dharana, dhyana, or mind control. And, and some of the texts talk about five limbs of yoga, or other texts talk about, you know, Buddhists talk about eight dharanas. So there's all these different uh, uh, schemas of yoga floating about in the pre-Patanjalian um, yogic uh, world, which is mostly a forest-situated one. So along comes Patanjali, and for whatever reason, takes it upon himself to systematize all this, put it once and for all into a nice, clear, systematic format, which would be preserved. Now, whether that's because of this idea that Kali Yuga is, uh, you know, as I mentioned, that Kali Yuga is sort of ravishing the old knowledge systems, also people's memories are declining, prior right, writing is considered a sign of degeneracy. We think of it as a big sort of milestone in human civilization, right? The invention of you know, fire, the wheel, writing. These are big sort of signposts that we, we're progressing. But in ancient India, it was a sign of decline because you, you were supposed to memorize these things. Not, uh, so therefore, writing is a prop. It's a prop for a weak mind. Um, I personally met in South India a, a Brahmana who knew the entire 100,000 verse Mahabharata by heart. And solidly. You could give him one line, not even the first line, third line, try to catch him out. Give him the third line, boom, he'd give you the whole, whole verse. So this, wasn't, this, is not a, this is not a myth. The, and not just in India, other Indo-European cultures as well. This sort of, um, this, uh, this, uh, this sort of mem oral recitation. So whether it's because the sense that the memory is declining, Kali Yuga is, is making itself felt, um, and the knowledge systems need to be preserved, fossilized. Once you put it in a sutra, it, that's it. You may have all different commentaries for centuries and still producing commentaries. We, we have a new one, Sami Narayan, has a, you know, 10 years ago, now we have the Sami Narayan commentary in the Vedanta Sutra. It's an ongoing, these are ongoing traditions, a new not just a, uh, not just a rendition of the old commentary, the Swami Narayan tradition is a new commentary based on the Siddhanta, on the philosophical viewpoint of Swami Narayan. So it's not just a recycling of old 
commentaries, which mine is. It's just a recycling of old commentaries. But, so this, these are ongoing um, additions. These are living traditions. Vedanta is a living tradition. So is yoga. You could say that as well. I mean, after all, you know, Guruji Iyengar has a commentary on the Yoga Sutras, which is you know, introducing many things that you don't find in the traditional commentaries. So you could either say, well, that's not legitimate. It's not, you know, part of the tradition. Or you could say this is a sign that the tradition is living and adapting and engaging with its environment, which it always has. There's always differences between commentaries. Think of the difference between Shankara's commentary and, and Madhva's. So for whatever reason, whether it's the sense that Kali Yuga is... Um, you know, there is the age, the, uh, the, the uh, um, detrimental effects of Kali Yuga um, requires that the Brahmins can no longer assume that memory, that the knowledge is going to be preserved by memory, number one. And number two, you know, tamas, you know, that, that there's more tamas in the Kali Yuga, so maybe there's more uh, a risk of knowledge systems being uh, abused. Whatever the reason, okay? And we get some sense of that if you read the opening verses of some of the Puranas, the sense of the sort of fear of the Kali Yuga. Or whether it's the threat of Buddhism that's coming along and saying, well, you know, there's no Atman. There's no, there is no Svarupa Avastanam, which Patanjali is going to um, define the goal of yoga as being, that the seer abides in its own nature. Um, uh, the Buddhism is going to say, well, there's no own nature, no, no swarupa. Everything is interdependent. Everything is momentary. Nothing lasts for more than... So these are, these are serious challenges to the, uh, Vedanta, the Vedantic point of view. So for whatever reason, um, scholars would say around the third century, we won't have to occupy ourselves. We'll, we'll leave dating to the scholars. We don't have to... We're more interested in the content of the sutras rather than uh, academic scholarship typically is more interested in context and his, his historicity. The, uh, so that's what really one of the main differences between an academic uh, study of a tradition and a practitioner study is the practitioner is typically, well we can't generalize too much, is more interested in content and uh, academia is more interested in uh, the context you know, what, what were the formative in, in influences? Well, what is the political milieu? What is the, uh, you know, what are the agendas, right? Postmodernism, what are the agendas of people writing this? I think Brahmin's trying to control everybody. What, what's going on? So uh, in, a, in a place like this, I, assuming we're more interested in content. Um, so someone calls Patanjali. We know nothing about him. Much later on, we have a verse composed about him. Um, that surfaces in the commentary of a king, King Bolger, um, king of, I think, Malwa. I can't remember the date, maybe 11th century or, or 9th century, can't remember. Um, who, who, who composed the verse that is recited now in Iyengar Studios, right? Yogena Chitasya, Padena Vacham, Malam Sharirasya, Chavaidyakena, Yu Apakarot, Tam Pravaram Muninam, Patanjalim, Pranjalir, Anatosmi. So that Patanjali gets associated with three things. He gets associated Yogena Chitasya for the mind yoga. Uh, yogena Chitasya Padena Vacham with grammar. And it is a fact that there is a grammar written on the famous great Panini grammar, greatest grammar of all time ever. And this amazing over 4,000 verse grammar by Panini. Or someone called Patanjali writes a commentary on that. 
You know, is it the same? Is it the same? Potentially, obviously, that's the kind of thing that scholars are going to quibble about. We don't need to concern ourselves with that. The verse also said he 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 brought something for Ayurveda. We don't have any text that surfaced under the name of Patanjali. Not that it could be something there, sitting in some temple basement. The text says three things. Um, so we have this, centuries later, we have this verse. Uh, uh, I don't think Bojaraj composes it. I think he's quoting it. So it pre-existed, Bojaraj. So we have this, so in terms of the historical Patanjali, we know very little. Is the point, and then in the, that verse, the second verse associates Patanjali with Vishnu in the form of Shesha, Abahu Purusha Akaram Shankar Chakrasi Dharinam Sahasra Shirsha Shvetam. So the so by that time, then uh, it seems that Patanjali uh, has been associated with Shesha. Uh, the uh, Shesha is the Vishnu reclines at the when he creates the universes, he's reclining on Shesha. So, uh, other than that, we know nothing about uh, Patanjali. Um, so, again, we'll leave that to historians. And he writes this very short little text. It's tiny. It's um, uh, 198 uh, sutras. Average length of a sutra is six words. So, if you put that all together, it's like two pages of 12, you know, double space, 12 font. Right? <laughs> if you had an assignment at Rutgers, two pages. Twelve font, that's a freebie, right? <laughs> so it's a tiny, tiny little, little text, um, but ex extraordinarily um, profound. And, um, and of course, the, when you create a, a sutra, the, um, the idea is to make it minimalistic, as succinct as possible, because you have to memorize them. So before you memorize any sutra, you have to know, know Sanskrit. And to know Sanskrit, you have to know Panini. To know Panini, that's over 4,000 sutras. That's before you get out of bed in the morning. If you're a little Brahmin boy in the Guru Kula, right? Before you do anything, you have to know Sanskrit. That's 4,000 sutras. So, but when it comes to Patanjali's class, that's a breeze. 200, 198. So um, they have to be, the definition of a sutra is, well, literally, we, all, we know it means to thread. A sutra is a thread, but um, the characteristic of a sutra is minimalism. And so you have that witty saying that um, a sutrakara takes greater pleasure if you, if you save one phoneme, one syllable, than the birth of a child. So that's how strict, uh, that's the standard. Um, so, that's why sutrakaras were, ne were never married. Nobody wanted to marry them. <laughs> Wrong attitude for, for family life. Uh, <laughs> so, very, very minimalistic. Now, the price of that is that you cannot understand a sutra. <laughs> um, Vedanta sutra, worse, worse of all. I mean, you have Vedanta I think in the whole of Patanjali, there's only two verbs in 100, 198 sutras. Vedanta Sutra is even worse. You have sutras like, and then this. <laughs> and then what? What? Where? How? So the Vedanta Sutra is uh, even worse. Than, but, but Patanjali, you know, there's a few sutras you can understand. It's not like the Gita. You can read the Gita. I mean, you know, pretty much anyone, who, even knowing nothing about Hinduism, you can read the Gita and 70% of it, perhaps, you can get a good sense of what's going on. Not with the Sutra. 
So there are even words in, in the, even within the sutras, there's a, a, a word like vitarka that's used completely differently in two different chapters. So therefore, you're dependent on the commentaries. You cannot read a sutra by itself. You would never, to this day, um, if you see a translation of the Yuga Sutra with no commentary, pay attention. You'll see there's a bunch of words injected into it that are not in the original. If you translate a sutra literally, there's no way you can construe meaning for most of, the, for most of them. You have to read them with the commentary. And traditionally, they were always read. And so sometime shortly after Patanjali, uh, someone that tradition says is called Sage Vyas writes the Basha, first commentary. Now, of course, Vyas is famous. It's probably very unlikely it's the same Vyas. We don't have to worry about that. Um, <clears throat> um, and so where Patanjali has six words, Vyas will write 12 lines. And he'll tell us what the sutra means. You would never in traditional India uh, study to this day, study the sutras without the Vyas. And then after that, over the centuries, you have other uh, commentaries that build on Vyas. Nobody messes with Vyas. Nobody disagrees with Vyas. Vyas becomes canonical. He becomes almost, he becomes an extension. As a matter of fact, there's even the, the, a position that, that Patanjali is Vyas, writing his own commentary. I'm not sure I'm convinced by that, but, but the point is there, that they're so closely connected. You, can never, you can't separate the two. You can't read the sutras without Vyas. And Vyas is, is commentaries and canonical, and after Vyas, then other uh, sutra writers write their commentaries. And what's, what's the right word? I don't know about refreshing, but what's, um, you know, one thing about the Yoga Sutra commentarial tradition is that the commentaries all sort of agree with each other. There's no major disagreements, at least on the basic metaphysics. There's Prusha, there's Prakriti. Yoga is Chittavriti Niroda, stilling the mind. There's no basic dis disagreements. L later commentaries will add stuff, maybe Vedantasize it a little bit, but not to the point of changing the metaphysics. So therefore, you can talk about a, tr a tradition, a tradition, a yoga tradition. You can't do that with Vedanta. You, you can't talk about a. In fact, people use the Vedanta much too loosely, and they tend to use it just for Advaita Vedanta. But in Vedanta, you have multiple traditions, and they, are, they disagree on the most fundamental of issues, not just trivial little things. The fundamental, what is more fundamental? Than the, is the world real? Is it false? <laughs> is God personal? Is God impersonal? Is the Atman one with Brahman, or is it, is it individualized eternally? There are no more fundamental questions imaginable, philosophically. And Vedanta disagree, disagree on those issues. So you cannot, we cannot talk about a Vedanta tradition if, we're, if we have any knowledge of Vedanta. We have to talk about Advaita Vedanta, a Vishisht Advaita Vedanta, and so forth. You know, Beda Beda. Um, <clears throat> but we don't have that, if you want to call it a problem, we don't have that challenge, that's a nice word. We don't have that challenge with yoga because the commentaries build on previous commentaries. So we can talk about a, a yoga tradition that that is handed down, um, seems to disappear at a certain point. It's no longer a really living tradition. It's, it, it's fossilized as a text. When the British go to India, they cannot find any living um, yoga teachers, yoga sutra teachers. There are plenty of nyayakas, there's plenty of Vedantins, obviously. They can find Vedic schools. They can, they can maybe 
I think we have one or two Sankhya people still around, but no living, t living tradition. I mean, there's Brahmins who, know, who can read the text with you, but they're not part of a living tradition. They're just Sanskritists who can tell you what it means. So when the British came, it, it was no longer a living tradition. It had its heyday probably around the 15th century. Then it seems to have, for whatever reason, morphed into Vedanta or whatever, Purana. The Puranas really take over yoga and, and, and the Ishvara Pranidhana element becomes uh, highly developed in the Puranas. And even Dainanda Saraswat, the great Arya Samaj founder, he couldn't find a teacher. So it wasn't just the British. It wasn't just the people didn't want to teach the British. Ah, malachas, I'm not going to teach the malachas. But even Dayananda couldn't find a teacher. So, um, so uh, and then due to the quirks of Hindu nationalism and Hindu resurgence, and there's a fabulous book on this by Mark Singleton and various others. And so, you know, now yoga is so widespread, it's attracted a lot of academic attention. Um, th then uh, it gets plucked out of um, obscurity almost um, by, by Krishnamacharya, and to some extent the great Shivananda, or Rishikesh, and of course by Vivekananda, and of course by Vivekananda, um, who writes Raja Yoga. And... Um, because, you know, because, uh, well, in Krishnamacharya, for whatever reasons, in Krishnamacharya's case, of course, a massive focus on asana, on posture, and so that needs some kind of a justification. You can't just invent stuff. If you're a traditional Brahmin, you can't just make stuff up. You have to have a, you have to connect it with the old traditions. You have to find something in the Vedas or the Upanishad, the Smriti or the Sutri, or the, or the, the, the Shruti or the Smriti, you have to find something. So for whatever reasons, the Yoga Sutras then, because it has three verses on asana, gets um, plucked out of a period of decline. And, and then as asana comes to the West, uh, the postural yoga comes to the West, um, along comes the Yoga Sutras as the canonical text. So now, in the West, um, the two canonical texts for, uh, I'm not talking about Hindu diaspora, talking about non-Hindus, Westerners who are, whether they know it or not, they're practicing, they're sort of adopting um, forms of uh, what we would, I suppose we call Hinduism. The two texts that have become canonical for the yoga community is the Yoga Sutras. People are reading, you know, if you do a, t a teacher training course now, uh, you do 200 hours or whatever it is, you have to do 20 hours of sutra study. So it's now become, uh, there's more people, I always joke, there's more people reading the Yoga Sutras in the West than in India. <laughs> people don't read the Yoga Sutras in India. Who, leaves, who reads the Yoga Sutras in India? Nobody. Uh, you, know, you have to go, maybe you go to Varanasi, you find some pandit in the Sanskrit department, he'll read it with you. But, it, you know. So, <coughs> so due to the uh, quirks of time and karma and who knows what else, here we are in the West. And the Yoga Sutra, now you go to any, any Barnes and Nobles, any bookstore, and you'll find multiple copies of the Yoga Sutra. It's now become a canonical text of world spirituality uh, for whatever reasons. We don't need to worry about that because it's a, fan, it's a fabulous text. And, and, then, and also the Gita. The Gita, um, of course, with its emphasis on, on Dharma and action, was more, uh, of more interest to Hindu nationalists. And the, the great figureheads of Gandhiji and Tilak 
and so forth, and Swamiji as well. Uh, so the Gita then gets also becomes appropriated. It also is a, It also was actually not quite. It, not like the Yoga Sutras, which became obscured. But even the Gita was a scholastic text. It was studied by the Vedanta tradition. It was, plucked, it was at some point. It's taken out the Mahabharata. Who knows when? But certainly by Shankara's time, it's been taken out of the Mahabharata, and it's one of the Prasthana Triya of Vedanta, Vedanta Sutra Upanishads and the Gita are now uh, become canonical for Vedanta, but Vedanta is an elite activity in pre-modern times. You have to be a, a male Brahmana to study Vedanta. So, it, so even the Gita was kind of a, a, an elite text until it became popularized and so forth in, 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 in the sort of national, in the 19th century and 20th century and then exported to the West and then so these texts have their histories, and of course scholars are interested in that. Um, but as practitioners, we're less interested in how things came to be where they are, because religion and spirituality is never static. It's always flowing. It's always cross-fertilizing. There's no pristine Vedic anything. If you read the Rig Veda, it's got nothing to do with modern-day Hinduism. Rig Veda hymns to Indra and Agni. So things are always, uh, religion is always flowing and adjusting and, uh, according to time and place. So here we are in the West, in New York City, 21st century, and our two canonical texts that, that are, are most visible in terms of what represents Hinduism in the West, two Westerners, the two texts that have come to define, it's not the Bhagavata Purana, it's not the Vishnu Purana or the Shiva Purana or the Agamas or the Tantrikas. Of course, there's communities, right? Muktananda brought Siddha Yoga. I mean, there's expressions of it, but that's not, not on a popular level. On a popular level, the texts that have come to represent Hinduism in, to Westerners, to non-Hindus, are the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras. So if you want to be a sort of educated citizen of the world, then you, you have at least have had read the Gita, at least. And if you're a practic uh, practitioner of, of yoga, which, of course, this thing called, people call yoga. And, uh, you know, you, uh, with any degree of sophistication, you, at least you'll have a copy of the Yoga Sutras on your bookshelf. <laughs> well, you have to dust it off and show it to people. But it's there. It's there. So these are the two texts. And uh, so I've been invited to, um, to speak to you on the Yoga Sutras, but time is up. Well, all this is all Chittavriti. I gave you all my Chittavriti. We didn't get to the Swarupa Vastanam. So, so Patanjali then kicks off uh, Atta Yoga Anushasanam, that he's going to Anushasanam, continue the teachings. He's not claiming to invent anything. Anu means to continue doing something. So uh, Atta Yoga Atta, now. Okay, and then, then you have these whole discussions, what does now mean? Right, what does it mean? Just like Atato Brahma Jignasu, what does now mean? Does it mean now we have the human form? Now we can practice yoga? Because we have now this capability of, of seeking spirituality, which animals don't have. So does utter mean now, in that sort of way, that we're now, we shouldn't waste a human form of life with just behaving like animals, in the sense of just seeking sensual indulgences and, and shelter and food and progeny? Well, animals do that. So does utter mean now we're the humans, we have, we're different in that, in, only in that way, otherwise how are we different? Humans can seek truth, they can seek higher truth. Otherwise, dvipa de pashu. 
the texts say well, we're two-legged animals then if you don't if we don't seek truth either through science or philosophy or theology or in some sort of way so does utter mean that or does utter mean as and and here you read the commentators the commentators and the commentators can say anything they want provided it doesn't interfere with the sedanta of that school so you can interpret words and add meaning and contribute meanings provided that what your contribution does not conflict with the uh, the Siddhanta, it's called in Sanskrit, which means the philosophical conditions of that school. So in Advaita Vedanta, there's a Siddhanta, right? The world is false, ultimately Atman uh, and Brahman are one. Uh, and provided, you, you, so but you can add any, uh, any sort of exegesis or any kind of explanation you want, as long as it stays within the, the, the metaphysical parameters of the, your, your lineage. So, um, so Atta can also mean Okay, now we've finished studying. Now what? Okay, so you read the Upanishads. Okay, so you know there's an Atman. Now what? You're not enlightened, just because you knew it. So then maybe now mean, well, now are you ready for practice? Are you ready to do something about realizing that Atman? So Atta, one word, you know, can take you, if you study with a traditional pundit in India, you know, uh, you, you better leave your watch behind at home. <laughs> Don't be looking at your watch and saying, but, but, but Swamiji, we've been an hour, it's just one word. Uh, so, Atta can also mean, you know, have you finished with the books now? You've got all the jnana you need? You want to keep jnana writing? You want to keep buddhi writing? You want to just keep reading more and more and more and more and more? And then what? You're going to die, then what? Then what are you going to do them ante kale, the moment of death? Just keep thinking about, oh, hang on, vishishta dvaita, no, and you're dying. <laughs> What's the point of that? So, Atta can also mean, now, you, now you've done all of that, put your money on a horse, whatever your horse is going to be, whatever makes more sense to your samskaras. You think Advaita Vedanta makes more sense of Vishishta Advaita, who's making that decision? It's not the Atman. It's the samskaras in your mind that, who knows, come from past life practices, come from whatever, grace, Ishvara, Daiva, you can frame in any way you want. But certain some, your samsaras are going to resonate with, okay, Advaita Vedanta. Or somebody else is going to say, no, hang on, Maya, what are we going to do with Maya? It, and they're going to resonate with Vishishta Advaita. So whatever it is, put your money on a horse. And, okay, Atta, now you've done that. Yoga uh, Nushasana, now maybe uh, are you ready to uh, engage in yoga? So for Patanjali, that yoga, and, and, and yoga is defined very differently in the Gita, by the way. Very differently. Patanjali's definition is uh, yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. The yoga is the nirodaha, the stilling, which means jnana and everything, the complete and utter stilling of all chitta vrittis, all of all chitta, the mind, vrittis, all expressions of thought, all permutations of thought. Completely stilled. No more study, no poor. At that point, when you're doing the meditation, all of that, you sh that you sh that's your groundwork. You should have done that like your asana, you should have done that. Uh, you do your asana, you do your so now you're ready, you sit, you're sitting, right? You've done your jnana, done your study, now, okay, you have whatever your siddhanta is, and now you're gonna fix your mind. And that's what yoga is. Yoga is chittavritti narodaha. It's stilling, it's a radical proposition. Completely and utterly stilling the mind. Um, Tada, then what happens? Tada, kimbhavati, tada, then what happens? Drashtu, Svarupe, 
avasthanam. Then, literally, there is the situatedness of the seer, of consciousness, svarupa, in its svarupe, in its own nature. Verse number four, vritti sarupyam itaratra. Otherwise, vritti sarupyam is absorbed in the mind. So yoga then, so right there you have the whole metaphysics of yoga. First of all, it's dualistic. There is consciousness and there's everything else. There's prakriti, there's the mind, which is prakriti. Okay? Um, and consciousness then has two options. Either it can be svarupa vastanam, situated in its own nature, or it is absorbed in other, the world, but through the mind, vritti sarupyam. It's absorbed in the mind, and then through the mind and through the senses, it's, it's absorbed externally. And Patanjali's Yoga Sutra then, and then Patanjali's uh, yoga for Patanjali then, is to, um, to uh, attain a, a state whereby consciousness can be absorbed in its own nature rather than absorbed in anything else. Now, why a yogi would want to have that experience is discussed in, in chapter two. Because when consciousness is externalized and, uh, and flows through the body-mind and um, attempts to seek happiness in the world of sense objects uh, through the desires of the imprints of the mind, it suffers. So ultimately, the ultimate goal of yoga is to, is to transcend suffering. The Gita even defines it that way. It's the, Gita has three different definitions of yoga, and one is just to, def, to transcend suffering. Nyaya, same thing, Nyaya Sutra, other school, to transcend suffering. So ultimately, the whole point of it is, um, it, why we, should we want to practice yoga? Because it's the only way of, so, of, uh, of, 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 stop, of stopping suffering in a deep level, not on a surface level. All the surface level ways, indulging the mind and senses, they're temporary, they're fleeting, and they don't fulfill in a deep level sort of way. So therefore, so therefore yoga is, uh, you know, people say, well, what, you know, how is that relevant to the real world? It's, yoga would see itself as being the pr profoundly relevant, and the only thing that's truly uh, permanently relevant, insofar as it takes people to a state of, deep level state of consciousness, svarupa, which of course Vedanta is going to say is satchidananda, is ananda, is blissful. That that's ultimately happiness. Uh, and everything else is illusory, and you know, if we had more time, of course, we could discuss that. So therefore, what is yoga? Uh, so what is yoga? Yoga is chittavriti narodaha, it's a stilling of the mind. Um, Tada, what happens then? What happens if you still the mind? Is that the end? Is that like existential death or something? No. Tada drashtu svarupe vastanam. Then the seer abides in its own nature. So, so therefore the, nature, the real nature of the seer is not the mind. It's different from the mind. Now whether the mind is real or false, that, that, that's a discussion for Vedanta. So, uh, and, um, but what does it matter? Because experientially it's the same. If you attain, whether the world is real or false, and whether the Atman is an individual or one with Brahman, is a scholastic issue. Because when you're in that state, it's an infinite, eternal state, and you're not aware of anything else. So what does it matter whether there is something else or there isn't, number one? And whether you're an individual and other individuals may be having the same experience, or whether there's no other individuals, it's just Sarva Midam Kalu Brahman. What does it matter in that state? It's an infinite, eternal state. 
So therefore, it's really a, uh, the issue becomes important for the, the theists, for the theists. The big debates between the Vedanta, you know, the Vaishnavas, they don't care, okay? You, Vaishnavas would say, okay, you want to, whether you're, you know, want to merge into Brahman, do it. F world is false, fine. Asat, does that mean it's false? Uh, but don't try to tell the Vaishnavas that Ishvara is also Maya, Maya, made of Maya. That's what they're going to fight you with. That's where the line in the sand is drawn. The rest isn't important. But if you try to, uh, if you try to say then, well, if the world is false, the creation is false, so the creator is also false, then, you're going to be, then you need to get ready, roll up your sleeves for a 2,000-year debate, which will never end. So that's the line in the sand, is fine. Uh, Vaishnavas don't deny that you can have an infinite, eternal um, experience where you're not aware of anything else. So whether that, there is anything else or there isn't is irrelevant. Whether there's anybody, other individuals experiencing that or not is irrelevant. That's all fine. But when you then say, well, but then Ishvara is also Maya, then, uh, then there's fireworks. So then you read Ramanuja's first verse of the Vedanta Sutra, 200 pages. He gets it all off his chest. Right, but one, one, one. Uh, Ramanuja in the 12th century, you know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, he, calls, he calls Shankara the, uh, the Mahapurva uh, Paksha. The great, uh, the great opposing point of view. Anyway, so Patanjali is not dealing with any of that. Um, he assumes that we've spent a few lifetimes doing that and finally are, are, are exhausted with all, all, all forms of vritti, uh, because even intellectual vrittis at some point, they're exasperating. You know, you read Shankara and it's brilliant, and you read... Ramanujan is brilliant, and at some point you're just like, okay, and then Madhava comes along and he's a whole other thing. Uh, Madhava, another brilliant, brilliant intellectual, uh, but radical. So at some point that gets exhausting too. So then Patanjali says, okay, if you really want to have, a, do you want to just think about these things, vritti away, you know? Uh, of course you have to do that. In, in, the, in the second chapter, Patanjali is going to say, Svadhyaya, study is, is a fundamental part of, the, of, of yoga. But at some point, um, one either puts the, the, whatever, you know, whatever Siddhanta one's ascribing to, one, one, one at some point one has to practice. And so Patanjali then has given us the mode of practice which is um, then t tailored and tinkered in, in all different traditions. So the, uh, the basic, you know, eight limb path of yoga, the, the, the process of dharana, dhyana, you know, in bhakti it's there, of course you fix the mind on, on, on japa, I mean Patanjali talks about japa, you fix the mind on mantra, that's the most common form of meditation, and always has been and still is. Uh, so, you know, the, the, shai, the, the, the kundalini, you know, traditions will tweak it with, with kundalini physiology and, you know, so everyone's going to tweak it this way and that way, but the basic uh, practice, and early Buddhism too, was dhyana. Mindfulness is a different stream of Buddhism. And Jainism, absolutely. So, if, so if we're looking for some kind of common denominator, tying together, um, and we have to be careful about this. We don't want to essentialize. We get in trouble with the academics. But if we're looking for some kind of a f fairly common denominator amongst the, the spiritual, deep spiritual traditions, not the cultural traditions, not just not the pujas, and, 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 but the deep level pra uh, practitioner traditions, probably the closest you're going to find is dhyana, some form of sitting and fixing the mind 
and, and typically on a mantra. So, um, in fact, there's somebody I'm hoping will be doing a PhD dissertation on that, um, challenging the notion that there's no unity whatsoever um, to Hinduism and, and showing that, well, actually, there are, you know, there's at least this one thing that's, that's pretty much at the core. It's idealized. Not everyone's doing it, obviously. Maybe only 0.01%, but nonetheless, it's, it's idealized as the sort of grand finale. Um, of m many, most of the uh, different traditions um, that go under the rubric of Hinduism. Oh, am I, are we going what, much too long with writing away here? Is it time to Nirodha? It's time to Chitta Viti Nirodha. We still can go on for 15 minutes more. 15 minutes. So, uh, so, that's if the, so the first four verses then, that's basically the whole of yoga. The rest is just embellishment on that. So, three verses. Yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha, that yoga is the stilling of the mind. Tada drashtu svarupe vasthanam, then the seer, but the seer not in eyeball sense, but in consciousness. Then consciousness svarupa in its own nature, svarupe vasthanam, and this distinguishes then yoga from Buddhism. Tada drashtu svarupe vasthanam. And if it's not doing that, if, if consciousness is not svarupe vastanam, it's not situated in its own nature, what's consciousness doing? Vritti sarupyam, absorbed in the mind. So the rest of everything else is just, and, and, and then unpacking that. Uh, the rest of the first chapter is, talks about the different stages of jitta vritti nirodaha, called samadhi. And then chapter two is kriya, or what do you do about, how do you do it? How do you actually get ready, prepare your mind so that it can actually be nirodahad? You have to make it sattvic. If it's rajasic and tamasic, well, you may understand what it's supposed to be, but the minute you sit down, your mind is, wants to check email. <laughs> so, right? Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> so, uh, and then the third chapter is this mystic power. Again, in, in my opinion, um, the commentators don't say very much about this, but um, I always used to think the third chapter, when I wrote the book, I thought it was, well, Patanjali's put in these mystic powers because maybe these things happen inadvertently when you're in deep states. All of a sudden you start, whatever, levitating or something. Um, and of course you have uh, uh, the Gospel of Ramakrishna if you want to read something about um, the expression of, of mystic powers in a modern, modern meaning, you know, modern, not living, but modern saint, um, Paramahamsa uh, Ramakrishna, um, his Gospel is full of accounts of mystic of some of these cities. So I used to think, well, potentially has this whole chat, and then he dismisses them. He says they're only of interest for people whose minds are outgoing, vyuttana, not to those who are, whose minds are ingoing, trying to realize the... So why put it in there then? Why, you know, it's like a quarter of the text. Uh, and I used to think it was just because he's warning us, well, if weird things start happening, don't be alarmed. But now I think uh, differently, it's too late to put it in the book, but... Now I think it's because there were many characters in ancient India that were doing these kinds of practice, intense medit uh, concentrative practices, and they were not even, and they were asuras uh, in the great tradition. As a matter of fact, when the British went to India, the word yogi, jo they called it jogi, jogi, the British say it was a dirty word. Villagers were scared. You didn't want the jogi coming to your village. He might, he might curse you. So yogis are not, you know, I mean, read the stories in the Puranas, even the Vishishta, great, great Brahmins, you know, you don't want to upset them. 
They'll curse you. <laughs> so there's this association of um, yoga, which survived right into the colonial period with power and scary kind of power. So perhaps that's, now I think that may be the case why Patanjali has this whole chapter on um, the cities, because um, he wants to make it clear that you, you, you know, you, you, that's not what real yogis do. They're not looking for power. And they don't want to ex show some cheap, some cheap e e exhibition of, of some trivial powers. And then the fourth chapter is, is uh, mostly a response to Buddhism because Buddhism is a polite response. It's a very gentlemanly response. The Vedanta, the Vedanta tradition can get a little bit more polemical, but the yoga response to Buddhism is, is very polite. And it's philosophical, it's not, it's not ad hominem. So, uh, so that's the fourth chapter. So, so there you have it. Um, I don't know if you've read the Yoga Sutras, but I, I, you know, um, it's, a, it's a fabulous text. It's, it's a, it's, and it would, you know, if you're interested in a, in a meditative practice and never quite got round to it, or you know, you need a little, little bit of a, add a little bit of a, of a, of a kick to your practice. You know, reading the, the text really does, uh, I think, give amazing insight into the nature of mind and consciousness. And uh, I suppose it's, it's the go-to book for also Hindu psychology, how the mind works and samskaras. I found it profoundly, um, it profoundly affected my own practice. Um, when I studied it. So do we have any questions? I'm sorry if I rambled on. If you have questions, please come here. We are recording it and so you conduct the thing. Like yes, okay. So, um, yes, sir. Please tell us your name and ask the question. Thank you for your nice presentation. My name is Ranjit Mitra. Uh, my question is that you, you beautifully explained many aspects of the Hindu philosophy, but is it a is it a practice? Is it a philosophy? Is it a knowledge or intellect, or it is just control of mind and action or action? But what does the other dimension call in that in, in very uh, in Indian traditions this? mysticism or the grace of God comes in, where do we get it in the Patanjali Sutras? Or is it something, something sure. not there? Um, it, there's not, you know, the Yoga Sutras presupposes, already presupposes knowledge. It's not a knowledge text. It's not a jnana text. It presupposes knowledge of Sankhya. As a matter of fact, it comes out of Sankhya. There was no difference between Sankhya and Yoga before the Sutras. When Vyas writes his commentary, he says, this is a commentary on Sankhya. So it presupposes you already have knowledge. So it's a practice text. It's dedicated to teaching us how to practice. So it tells us, okay, right in the, right in the beginning, Chitta Vritti Naroda, this is what you do. Chitta Vritti Naroda. Then he discusses the different states, but not in the sense of knowledge, more as signposts to practice. So the knowledge texts are the Vedanta Sutras and Sankhya and the knowledge traditions and Nyaya and Vaisheshika. Those are knowledge traditions. By the time you get to yoga, yoga is coming out of the knowledge traditions. It's coming out of Sankhya. It was also coming out of the Upanishads. But the Patanjali's, the goal of it is not to present a, 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 a metaphysics. The goal is to present a, a, a practice, how to practice. Um, in terms of uh, Ishwar is there. 
in the Yoga Sutras, but very understated. So but when, if you're going to fix the mind, you have to fix it on something. The Alambana. Right? If you're going to neuroda her the mind, you know, you, you, to fix something, you have to fix it on something. And the mind is no different. It has to be fixed on something. And so Patanjali gives a list of things to fix it on. But he starts off with Ishvara, and he has like five or six verses on Ishvara. So he's clearly uh, presenting that as the best option. And how do you fix the mind on Ishvara? Well, tasyavachika pranava. Ishvara comes as pranava's om. Well, what do you, well, well, you know, what do, you do with that? Well, tajapa. Tajapa, do japa of the Om. So the Ishvara is there in the form of japa, and then later on in chapter, you asked about grace. Later on in chapter two, Patanjali says, Samadhi Siddhir Ishvara Pranidhanat. Ishvara can give you samadhi. Same as Krishna says in the Gita several times. He says, okay, it's very easy, it's easy. I will give you, I will give you, I will give you. So there is an Ishvara element there, but it's very understated. So if you're looking for a a Patanjalian practice, which is with a more a richer Ishvara devotional element, then, then, you, then we have to go to the Puranas. The point is that, uh, as Swami Vivekananda has explained, those four yogas, the Karma Yoga, the Bhakti Yoga, the Dhan Yoga, the Raja Yoga, so I think Patanjali is more like, more like what you call Dhyana Yoga or Raja Yoga yes. than exactly like Karma Yoga. He's not advising you to do be active in the... No, no. no he's advising yeah. to do inaction. Yes. In the Gita, Krishna talks about two paths. Yes. So, so is there a, like a conflict? Or it's just Not a, a conflict. Like a it's just a different way. Krishna says there are two paths. And one got lost. The path of action in chapter 4. And Krishna says, and I'm coming back to establish the action path. And, you, and, I, and Bhaktosi, you're my Bhakta, so I'm teaching it to you. But the other path is the inaction path which is a Patanjalian type of path, where you, 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 you're not, if, if it's true that you're the Atman, and it's true that you're not the body-mind, then why waste time flapping about in the world? <laughs> go to the forest, why the forest? Because you want to go to a place where you won't be distracted, right? In Christianity, it's the desert. You go to the desert, but in Hinduism, you go to the forest. And, uh, 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 and Nirodaha, the world, Prachahara, what is the fifth limb of yoga, Prachahara, close out the world. But that is, but in Indian, most of the Indian uh, philosophy, religious uh, studies, they don't deny the world. They said there are different ashramas in a person's life, like Garhustu, uh, like Brahmacharya, Garhustu, Panaprastu, then Sanyas. So I do not know if it is, There's um, the, it's there's, just an idea. Or it's a different a option. Yes. It's a different option. Krishna is to saying about how to do yoga with the Varna Ashram and do your duty. That's the teachings of Bhagavad Gita. Patanjali is giving a different set of options. They're both valid. But you don't have to have either or. Not from my Rutgers students. You know, you guys get no. You've had your. You had five years of questions. No, no, we should have them. You still got questions? I failed. I failed in my dharma. They ask good questions. Professor. Do you know these gentlemen? He is come here. So, as practitioners, as striving practitioners, dietetics is something that always comes up, you know, what, what is? Di diet, like diet, like what you we eat, diet. right? Oh. So like uh, vegetarian, non-vegetarian, veganism is quite popular these days. Uh, so um, what, do, what would the uh, 
uh, what would the Yoga Sutras uh, speak about this? And actually, Swamiji, you have also mentioned that um, you know sometimes that uh, because strictness in dietetics also could become a hindrance. And um, also, you brought up a good point earlier uh, that um, sometimes that uh, can someone who can someone not be self-realized if they eat animals, right? Like Swami, Swami Vivekananda had uh, fish, right? So well, I, I'm not going to re respond to that last part, um, but clearly the um, Ahimsa tradition is vegetarian. And that's, that's in the, if you're asking about Patanjali and yoga tradition, it's clearly vegetarian. So that's just a given. So in other words, why would you, apart from the dietary aspect of it, if you're really able to see the... Uh, the Atman in all beings, and you're able to see the suffering in all beings, and you know the Jains are particularly powerful here, um, and and, the, and they're saying, Don't, can't you see the animals suffer? Can't you see that just like you flee when your life is threatened, they flee when their life is threatened? Uh, it's very powerful. So the reason for Ahimsar is compassion. You know, in our modern day, the reason for a vegetarian diet tends to be selfish, right? The environment, the health. Oh, the economy, right? If we don't eat, you know, if we don't feed cows, we could all that grain could we could solve world hunger. So they tend to be, in a sense, self selfish. Whereas the uh, the arguments in ancient India were compassion based. Why would you call if you're an enlightened being and you see the Atman, as Krishna says in the Gita, right? Vidya Vinaya Sampane Brahmane Gavi Hastini. You see the Atman in all beings. Why on earth would you uh, contribute to an activity that causes suffering? So it's a given. Um, uh, that it's certainly in the, in the yoga tradition that ahimsa uh, means vegetarianism. Now, you'll find ways of wriggling out of that, fine. You'll find stories in the Puranas of she, you know, Vishishta ate meat, and you know, you're fine if you're looking. If that's some skaras and your desires and your raga, you know, I really need that, you'll find some pramana, you'll find some textual uh, authority to, that will say, oh, well, he did it. So if that's what you're looking for, you'll find it. But let's be clear that the Ahimsa tradition is a vegetarian tradition. Um, and not just in, in Hinduism, but in Jainism. And um, in early Buddhism, I would say, although and that, that's another story. So, um, so then can one be a yogi? Uh, and the other thing about meat, it, apart from the compassion aspect, from a selfish point of view, it creates tamas in the mind. It's dead, it's rotting. If you read the Bhagavad Gita, it talks about sattvic food. That's a good place to look. So there, uh, anything that's rotting is tamas, anything that's dead and rotting. So therefore, when you eat meat, dead, meat is dead. I mean, you buy it, and, it's, and they, pump, it's, you know, they pump it full of preservatives and color to make it not look dead, but it's disgusting. So if you eat, it, it's rotting flesh. Or are you supposed to call it something else? It's rotting flesh. So if you eat that, apart from, you, you, let's say you don't give a damn about the animal, compassion, throw that out the window. But meat has a, a, tam a tamasicizing effect. It will create tamas in the mind. So even from the point, selfish point of view, I want to be a practitioner. I want to, from a Patanjalian point of view, I want to Naroda my mind. To Naroda the mind, the mind has to be completely sattvic, 100% sattvic. And so therefore, any, anything that's tamasic is an, is an obstacle, is, a, is, a, is an obstacle to that goal. So for that reason as well, meat, uh, both from the point of view of compassion, and that's a higher reason, but from a, from a sort of also from the point of view of attaining the goal of chitta vritti Rodha, vaisharadi, you have to be full clarity, 
you can't be, have meat in your system because that will produce tamas. Thank you. Tell me how you really feel, right? <laughs> Hi, my name is Namit Gupta. Uh, I had a question uh, about how uh, Yoga Sutras of Pitanjali relate to Christian uh, mysticism. There is a concept of dark night of the soul in Christian mysticism. I was wondering, uh, do the Pitanjali Sutras talk about ego death and what would be your take? Is that an unavoidable situation when someone is going into Samadhi or not? I mean, it's been a very long time since I read Dark Knight of the Soul, but as I remember it, um, the idea there is that you go in the beginning of your practice, you, you get results and you get, and you're all enthusiastic, but then you go through this period where it seems like you're stagnating, especially in the, also in the bhakti traditions, and you feel like your initial enthusiasm and um, experiences all of a sudden start to get less, and it feels like you're making no progress at all. And so then you go through this dark night of the soul where you have doubts and then you have to go right back to the beginning and think, okay, why am I doing this? And you know, how, why did I start this whole thing? So that's my understanding of what that, the dark night of the soul is. And then you have to go through that, that period of where it doesn't seem, it seems like God has distanced himself or herself and, um, and, and you're struggling and getting nowhere and but you have to go through that period and then eventually then success comes. Um, but in terms of ego death, of course, the ego is ashmita in Patanjali, and that is one of the kleshas, the obstacles. So you have to go, uh, you have to go past any form of 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 uh, ego, which is yeah. Is that avoidable, or is everyone has to go through that process? Everyone has to go through the ego. The ego is what is consciousness is external. Ego means I, I'm this body and mind, right? So if we think with this body mind, then consciousness is absorbed in the body mind. And therefore it's thinking, I'm this, I'm this body, I'm male, I'm white, and I'm my mind, I'm happy, I'm sad. That means consciousness is externalized and pervading the coverings around it. So if it's externalized, it's not svarupe vastanam, it's not absorbed in its own nature. So therefore, any type of Patanjali in practice, and you can look for parallels in Christianity, if you look in the, in the Gnostic traditions. Um, yes, you have to go past ego. Ego is a false covering. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, because the Atman is the same in all beings. Yeah. Thank you. Well. <coughs> Professor, yes, I am very humbled to ask you a question. First of all, I am a devotee of Sri Ramakrishna Thakur, and as, as much as I learned from him that he didn't teach me to lean towards mysticism, he told me that I learned that you float like a lotus and you will never drown. Then Patanjali helps is a valid point to control external mind to internalize, to realize reality. That reality to discover myself. That Thakur taught me. And in that case, it's not that blindly I accept that Thakur is Bhagavan. Thakur told the truth, how to know yourself, what is reality. And number two question for no, the question. No question. Question is that to me, I learned from Thakur that Thakur taught me to go above mysticism. Don't use Patanjali as to acquire power, to abuse power, to gain power, being a Ashur. 
Mm. That I learned from him. Okay. Number two, one. Yeah, what is the question? Question is that. That's a statement. It's true that Thakur teach me that. Okay. What's the second question? Second question in term of food, mm. that if I admit my existence that I exist, in that case, food is secondary because I cannot eat anything. If I'm too compassion, trees. When you cut the trees. It seems that tree has life. Mm. I should not eat anything in this world. Then how can I admit I exist? Sure. Uh, you know, the Jains would say uh, you, you, you minimize as much as possible violence. So they, the Jains would not even eat any root vegetables. And then Vaishnavas would say that, okay, there's always violence. There's always violence, even if you cut... Of course, when you take an apple, you're not killing the tree, and you're taking the apple at the time when if you didn't yeah, take it, it would exactly. fall anyway. So a lot of vegetables, there's, there's no violence, but there's some like the wheat that you're cutting. So Vaishnavas would say, then you offer, uh, as you offer to Ishvara with devotion. And then any little residue of karma that is even in the vegetarian diet by the offering with, with bhakti, <coughs> bhakti, then that gets removed. And it goes back to the old mimamsa, you know, the old manu. You know, the mimamsa is where you have, to, you know, the, the householders, they have the four kinds of... Anyway, it doesn't matter. But th that's, one, that's, one thing, that's one thing we can do, is we offer the, as prashad. And also, if I leave a place, there is no tree too much, only river, I have to eat fish, because I don't have choice. Well, not according to... Pat not, Patanjali wouldn't accept that. No? He would say... Jati Desha Kala Samaya Anavichinaha. There are no, there are, uh, there's no exceptions based on your jati, your, your, your family, Desha, your country, geography, where you're living, yeah. Kala, the yeah. time, and Samaya condition. Anavichinaha, Mahavratam, it's the great vow. So Patanjali would not accept that you, you, you should eat fish. If there's water and fish, then there's water, there's vegetation. If there's vegetation, then plants are growing. If plants are growing, we'll stick some seeds in and eat vegetables. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Don't you still owe me a paper? <laughs> you owe me a paper, young man. No, I don't. Not you? No. Um. So my question was that, um, your name? Yeah. oh, my name is Neil. Um, my question was, is in, in the practice of meditation, uh, is there a difference between um, mindfulness and uh, the meditation of the Yoga Sutras? Yes. And then just one more question. Um, the, the witness that, like, that is talked about in Buddhist meditation, uh, is there a difference between the witness consciousness and then the seer? Uh, for Patanjali, there would be. Yeah. So in, um, in, in Buddhism, there were two. Early Buddhism was dhyana, you know, citta vritti naroda practices. Um, and, there, and there are differences of opinion among scholars uh, as to whether, how far back mindfulness goes. Because I've read some scholars say it goes way back, early days, and others saying it's more recent. But it doesn't matter. Mindfulness, you don't naroda the mind. You're not stilling the mind. You're, you're allowing it to do whatever it wants. And you're just witnessing it. And by witnessing it, you see how fo f foolish and fickle and silly it is. And that in itself, just the power of observation, m makes the foolishness evaporate a little bit, right. you, you know. Right. So mindfulness, is there's no attempt to still the mind. Now, in terms of the witnessing consciousness, um, I, I, you know, you'd have to, you know, uh, you know, because, of course, Buddhism doesn't accept that there's an Atman. 
underpinning everything, although they, they do accept consciousness. It's just right. that they, they, yeah. they say consciousness is momentary and interdependent. But anyway, that witness would be the buddhi in Sankhya, not the Atman. The Atman is not doing anything, it's just conscious. So to witness, uh, that actual witness of the mind is the buddhi, it's the higher mind. And so you have in, in you know, the Upanishads, you know, the, that, the, that the, uh, the charioteer is the buddhi and the mind is the reins. But the Atman is just a passenger, it's not doing anything. Okay. So it's providing consciousness, but not, there's no cerebral activity or processing, all of that's buddhi. So the higher awareness is buddhi. Um, and, and of course, your, any, Chittavriti Naroda is buddhi. Because who's nirodering the mind? It's not the Atman. Who's nirodering the mind? It's buddhi. If you want to use a Patanjali calls it the Naroda Samskara, but what's the Naroda Samskara? It's buddhi. So different traditions may f use different phraseology, but that's going on in the that's the higher mind. So any type of yoga practice, we have to. It's not going on in the Atman. It's going on in the mind. The mind is eliminating itself actually in yoga. The mind is realizing it that it is the cause of suffering, mm -hmm. that it is an imposter, and through jnana it can know that. Through jnana it realizes its own external nature, so then it decides, and, and, and it is the cause of suffering with its desires and illusions. So essentially the mind is neurodering itself, it sounds bizarre, but that's what's happening. Right, so when, so when we say the seer is abiding in its own nature, that's what we're saying? Yeah, no? the, okay. when the seer abides in its no, it's not aware of the mind. The, the minute you're witnessing your mind, you're externalized. Consciousness is external. In svarupe vastanam, there's no awareness of the mind. It's svarupa, svar, its own rupa. Of asthanam, situated in itself, there's no awareness of the mind. You're not being mindful. That's that's earlier stages. Right. But we, of course, we can't skip those stages. But ultimately, that state of pure consciousness is just is is contentless. There's no content. So that's nirguna. It's nirguna, sarvavyapaka. It's infinite. It's all pervading potentially. And Vedanta will say it's ananda. Otherwise, who was going to do it? If you don't throw in ananda, if you just say such it, <laughs> well, it is, and it's conscious, I don't you know, who's going to sign off on that? You know, go to the forest for 50 years just for sat and chit? I'll be sat and chit right here, thank you very much. <laughs> so you have to throw in some ananda there, otherwise, who, who would seek it? So, um, yeah. So are consciousness and Atman the same thing? Yes. In other words, if we try to find the seer, the best translation for drashtra, because that's the term that's used, drashtra and drishya, is but pure consciousness. And it gets confusing because you, often consciousness is used in Western philosophy to mean consciousness of something. So it helps if you add pure consciousness. And by pure we mean not mixed with anything else, not mixed with an object. If there's an object and, and consciousness becomes conscious of the object, it's now mixing with the object, so now it's aware of it. So if you use the word pure, it means it's not like pure milk. It's not mixed with anything. It's just pure milk. So, um, so, so better to say pure consciousness, to be very clear about how you... There's no word in, in Western language, because there's no, there's no history of that notion. And maybe in some mystical traditions, but even then, there's no clear history of, uh, of that. You know, so there's no real vocabulary. So then we have to sort of, then we have to create terms like pure consciousness. Right. 
So then in that case... In, um, and which is, the, by the way, which is near Bija Samadhi, Asamprajnata Samadhi, Kevalya, within the sutras as, uh, as Svarupe Vastanam. These four phrases are all uh, synonymous in the Yoga Sutras. So in that case, consciousness is not a, a byproduct of the brain. No, it's not an epiphenomenon of the brain. In other words, it is not an, a neuron. Yoga would say you will never find the neurological correlate of consciousness. And, you, and right now, the neurological model of consciousness is dominant in, is dominant in you, you study neurology? No. No. But the neurological model of consciousness is dominant, and, there, and that's the holy grail. You have to find the, sort of the neuron or the combination of neuron or the material brain conditions, which you can demonstrate repeat, and, and repeat that this is the origin of consciousness. Yoga will say, keep going. So we'll check back in, fi we'll check back in, we'll check back in 50 years. Sure. If I could just say, okay, go on, Swamiji, and I, I make one other point. No, this is uh, a very good way of uh, segueing into what I wanted to ask. Um, right now, the hard problem of consciousness uh, is a big thing in not only the philosophy of mind, but in um, AI, in neuroscience. Sure. Uh, David Chalmers is right here in NYU who's proposed it. The, uh, as you just, uh, in fact, you initiated the discussion right now very beautifully saying that the dominant dogma is that somehow consciousness must be an epiphenomenon, yeah. a, a product of the sure. biochemical processes in the brain. Yeah. And what David Chalmers and others have said is that the purely subjective nature of experience, qualia, that can, in principle, it cannot be explained by something objective like the brain, no matter sure. how complex you make it. Yeah. At this point, the question is, the Sankhya, Yoga and Advaita, and maybe in some sense, the Yogacara, Madhyamaka, yeah. idea of Swaprakasha Chaitanya, yeah. consciousness which is self-effulgent. Yeah. Uh, do you think it can, uh, do you th what would your reaction be to the whole problem at this stage? And what can Sankhya, Yoga and Advaita contribute to the discussion on the hard problem well, of consciousness? Well, what the, the Indian, uh, uh, the Sankhya and Vedanta traditions can contribute is the proposal that, which is called substance dualism in Western philosophy, Substance dualism, substance which dualism. is often associated with Descartes, but, but, but later forms, that consciousness is not in any way material. Yes. And that therefore, uh, of course, you know, philosophers of religion can debate this, but philosophers of religion know that you can't, that there's problems with both arguments, but, but there are problems, I'm reading an article right now by a materialist, philosopher of religion, who's saying, I'm a materialist, I don't accept that it's a separate substance, but I need to acknowledge in honesty that there's no good arguments being brought forth to disprove that view. Mm -hmm. So now, so that's the philosophers of religion. Uh, now, in terms of science, um, I think Nyaya has something to say here, because Nyaya says, okay, identify it then. If it's a material thing, Nyaya uses inference. If it's a material thing, well, where is it? Huh. Produce it. And of course, they, they didn't talk about neurons. They talked about what their understanding of, of the self. They say, where is kind? Is it in the leg? Is it in the arm? And then by process of elimination, when you realize that it cannot be found in any material substance, then you make an inference that it must be something other. So I think science can get to that point. They can't start talking about Atman and Krishna with his flute and, and a peacock feather. Mm. That's not science. But, the, but they can get to the point, maybe 10 years, 15, 20 years, when, when they fail to find 
the neurological correlate of consciousness, that then they'll be forced to concede then it must be something other. That's as far as you can go with science. It right. must be something other. At that point, then the, not, the, the, you know, then the mystical traditions of India step in with their, we've been saying this all along for 2,000 years, and here's what we have to say. But science has to run its course first. David it's got Chalmers to fail. It's got to fail yeah. to find those neurological, uh, neurological correlates. And if it finds them, yeah. we're in trouble, my friends. We're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say. We are open to the truth. Show us and yeah. you'll be convinced. Yes. And I, I'm going to say goodbye to all religion and spirituality. Yes. Except maybe, maybe a pragmatic use might remain over. But it, I can't see on principle how the... The sub purely subjective, the qualia nature, yeah, the first I mean, person. And that's what philosophers of religion will say. Right. It's a quality that, even by philosophy, right, qualities have to be grounded in substances. There's no substances that can account for the quality, the qualia, the quality of consciousness. So we just need to let that run its course and we'll keep chanting our mantras. Yes, thank you very much. But this is our contribution. Absolutely. At the end of the day, then people then, you know, having gone through that, will then maybe... Uh, look at the spiritual traditions with fresh eyes. But right now, there's a, there's a materialistic dogma. It's like a faith, actually. It's a faith. It's a faith. It's not based on any, on, on any evidence. So there's an actual faith, which some people call the new, you know, scientism. Scientism. Yeah. Right. Uh, one more point related yes. to this. Uh, the distinction between consciousness and mind, when you apply the drashta and drishya paradigm, yeah. in uh, Sankhya, in Yoga, and in Advaita, yeah. Uh, in fact, in all, just about every Indian philosophy, mm -hmm. they make a very clear distinction between um, Atman and Manas. Yeah. Yeah. This is not clear in modern consciousness studies. Uh -huh. they, they keep swinging back and forth sure. between consciousness and yeah. mind. Um, I mean, there's and that's another contribution because the another contribution. when people want to critique Descartes, yes. they say he cannot account for how, because he says mind is, is spiritual. Yeah. So they say he cannot account for how a spiritual thing can influence a material thing. But Sankhya and Yoga, and everybody except Nyaya, uh -huh. and Nyaya would say it's a quality of the Atman, Gyana. Yes. But the Vedanta Sankhya Yoga would say mind is material. Yeah. So that, it, it, that avoids that particular problem Descartes has, that, that, that is associated with substance dualism, which tends to get connected to Descartes, because Sankhya says, no, mind is material and matter can affect matter. Right. So therefore that eliminates that particular problem. I'm not saying there's not other problems. Leading okay. to a consciousness matter duality. Yes. Uh, so then, I mean, so therefore consciousness is not doing anything. It's not, it's not affecting anything. It's just animating everything. Right. It's a different proposal. Um, Sankhya Yoga stop at a substance dualism. Yes. Um, but Advaita, yes. I think the closest term I found to it in, Western, uh, in modern philosophy is uh, a neutral mo monism that you have one substance, you don't have to call it spiritual or material, because it underlies both the spiritual, so-called spiritual and material. Well, wouldn't you just call it idealism? That's what they would try to call it, but yeah. idealism, the way idealism is understood, the general trend in idealism is that everything is reduced to the mind. Yeah. But when you make a distinction There's between mind, mind and consciousness... There is no correlate. Why do you look for correlate? Uh, why, uh, do, why do we look for correlates? Why can't we just establish, why do we have to frame Eastern tradition in Western categories? They're not, they don't do that. No, they don't do They're that. They're not framing their Western categories in Indian terms. Right. So let's, uh, let's hold, our, hold our turf and say, the, you need to, if you want to talk to us, you need to learn a few Sanskrit terms, my friends. Right. 
No. Because there is no correlate. Right. I, I, I agree entirely. But yeah. because the term substance dualism is brought up, I thought maybe an easier way to e- for them to Fair ease enough. into this idea would be a neutral monism. I don't know what that um, is. Neutral monism? I just found it recently. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, the problem with that is nobody, nobody knows what that is. I mean, it's <laughs> exactly. not even Western philosophers. So, you know what I mean? You might, you're better off with the Sanskrit. Right, right. All right. It's, that's very important. Uh, right. Encouraging. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Rodrigo, and I was just uh, recently um, reading that um, Beta Biasa is a title that is not an actual person that have been many Beta Biasas. Would you mind to elaborate on that? I don't have anything to say. It's possible. Um, certainly, you know, uh, I mean, the tradition says he was a person. Yeah. And that he's an Anksha. In the, in the Bhagavata Purana says, Vedavyasa is an Anksha of Narayana. He's mm-hmm. a real person. So tradition has said that. But it's true. Like, for example, if you sit uh, to give a, a talk in some ashrams, it's called the Vyasa San, the Asana of Vyas. So it also, it's true, has the status of a title. So you could. You could take it that way if you wanted, Veda Vyas. But, okay. but that doesn't mean that the, the tradition is not saying he wasn't a historical person. No, no, I didn't mean that. No. So I, if I don't recall bad, I think that um, where I was reading it, it said that the current Veda Vyasa was somebody that went by the name of Krishna. And Dvaipayana. 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 But that is Veda Vyas. That's Veda Vyas. Look, Veda Vyas simp- is a function. Mm-hmm. Veda is the Veda. Vyasa means to Vyasa, to separate. Okay. So Vyasa means to divide, the divider. So the, the one who divided the Veda, the Veda, the one who Vyasa, the Veda, is Veda Vyas. So that was his function. But his name is Krishna Dvaipayana. Um, so. Uh, the tradition, I mean, you know, if you accept this, any historical va- value at all to the tradition, he was a person. Now, maybe later on the term gets used as a, as a, as a title, I, I, I don't know. Okay. I haven't seen it used, I mean, if it is, it's not used ubiquitously as a title. No. But it could be used. I wouldn't yeah. deny that. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Sanjay Day. So my question is on the historicity of is the traditions. Is everybody Bengali here? We all Bengali, all the Indian gentlemen Bengali? No, okay. okay. Sorry. No problem, yeah. So my question is the historicity of the traditions. So yes. when you mentioned that the, during the 18th century, the colonial British period, and also the Dwayan and Sarathi, Sarathi didn't find an authentic yoga teacher of the traditions. Yes. I recently came across to this uh, Nath tra- tra- tradition which is very common in the eastern part of Bengal, Assam, Nepal, and they claim that they are neither Advaitic nor theistic, and they are the true perceptors and preservers of the yoga tradition, mm-hmm. which is very popular and later got influenced the Bajrayana uh, Tibetan Buddhism as well. Mm-hmm. So the Matshanarath and Gorakshanath. So what's, what's your point on that? Well, this a is a very living tradition till today. Sure. There's a lot of great work coming out of Soas in London. Um, there is a, a scholar there um, whose name is Jim 
Mm, I forget his Jim name. Mellison? Mallison, Mallison? Mallison? Mallison. James, James Mallison. And he's got a, a, a very nice grant. And then he's, he's accessing all of the, the, the Tantra, the Nath, the Hatha texts. Um, although I don't know how far back they go. Um, I would, at this point, resist the idea that yoga comes out of the Nata tradition. Certainly it's, it's absorbed into the Nata tradition. But yeah, the Natas are not Advaitin. They are Advaitin, but in a different sort of way. There's different types of Advaita. They're Advaita in the sense that the Atman becomes one with the Supreme, but the world is real for them. It's not Maya. It's not a superimposition. It's Chitti Shakti. It's pulsating Spanda. It's, it's Shakti. So therefore, they're, they're monists of a different type. So, they, so they're theologians like Abhinavagupta reject Advaita Vedanta, or at least they, they, they counter Advaita Vedanta. So the Nata, the, the Nata, the whether you want to call it Tantrika or Hatha, these cluster of traditions, very strong in, as you say, in Bengal and Assam, and the Himalayas and affects Tibetan Buddhism. Those traditions, the world is, re is real. So in that sense, it's different from Advaita Vedanta. Yes, but it's a part of the yoga tradition, right? It, um, it, well, it's an expression of the yoga tradition. I mean, I yoga, mean is more, it, yoga is Chitta Vritti Naroda. So that can get absorbed into so many different ways. In Vaishnavism, where Bhagavan is real, not, you know, with Bhagavan, there's, a, there's Vaikuntha, there's Saguna Brahman, there's condensed consciousness that has Nama and Rupa. They also use a Chitta Vritti Naroda practice. So the Chitta Vritti Naroda is a practice. It can be used in Jainism, it can be used in Buddhism, it can be used in, in, in Nat, in it can be used in Vaishnavism, it can be used in Advaita Vedanta. Although most Advaita Vedanta is more focused on jnana rather than any action that can bring it about because action is ultimately unreal. So the Advaita Vedanta, but th there's no reason why you couldn't use Chitta Vritti Naroda practice in hardcore Advaita. So it's a practice. You could use it in Christianity. Sure, thank you. Yeah. Um, was the uh, Mataji up? Are you? Yes. Swagatam. Last one. I have a very short question. Please tell us your name. Uh, my name is Shipra Roy. So. I'm scared. How would the string theory goes? To explain consciousness. Oh, ask these gentlemen behind you. <laughs> ask Raghava. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not an expert. I'm trying to come up, I'm trying to read more about it. Yeah. Next semester, I'm teaching a course called Science and Religion. Yes, yeah, Science and Religion. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know what, enough right now. Okay. But my friend Raghava behind you, <laughs> get, get him afterwards. Thank you. And give him, you know, buy him a chai. And then he'll tell you everything about spring, uh, string theory. But anyway, there is somebody called Amit, Go, Amit Goswami, who I believe has written a couple of books. So he'd be in a much better position. You know, I think his books will probably deal with that. Uh, Amit Goswami. Goswami. My name is uh, Babu Bangaru. I have two questions. One is, you alluded to this earlier. What is the essen essential difference in the metaphysics of Buddhism and Hinduism? What's the difference between Nirvana and uh, uh, the, uh, the tradition of uh, Moksha as it is uh, talked about by uh, 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 
Patanjali. Patanjali specifically, because when we say Hinduism, remember there's many different right. understanding of sure, what moksha sure. is. Okay. So moksha is different, you know, in Advaita Vedanta, at least in terms of how the sure. scholastics present it. Um, and, and there's many schools of Buddhism. It's the same thing. You have, you know, already centuries and centuries and centuries ago, we had 18 different schools of Buddhism. But one, uh, one difference is that from the point of view, of, look at verse number three of Patanjali. What happens when you chitta vritinaroda, tada, then, then what happens? Drashtu svarupe vastanam. The consciousness abides in its own nature, autonomous, independent, self-contained. It's essential. It has its essence. And it can remain in its own essence, separated from everything else, and that essence never changes. Sat. It's always in a continuous state. Buddhism, as of the philosophers, uh, doesn't accept, A, that consciousness can be svarupevast, situated in its own nature. Consciousness is always interdependent with objects. So the, one of the, perhaps the most important word in Mahayana, Nagarjuna, Madhyamika Buddhism is interdependence. Pratitya samutpada. So therefore consciousness can never be svarupe vastanam. Um, it always is interdependent, number one. Number two, it's not sat. It's not continuous, eternally, it's not being in, an, in a never-changing way. It is momentary. Kshanika. It lasts a kshana. And then followed by another moment, another moment, another moment. So therefore, that's the metaphysical difference. Now in terms of nirvana, Buddhists don't talk about some state beyond, like, you know, Brahman or Vaikuntha. For the, well, at least for Nagarjuna, he would say samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara. It's just an enlightened way of being in the world, of being part of the flow of your particular, you call it a flow of your particular persona, that momentary interdependent flow remains in, in reality, doesn't go anywhere, um, but in an enlightened sort of way. It's very hard to get a good um, response to what is nirvana um, from, from Buddhism because it's, it's just a tricky thing. But, but those, at least metaphysically, those are two differences. The consciousness is momentary. For, uh, for all the Indian schools, it's eternal, not momentary. Number one, and number two, the other schools, Jainism included, it can, be, it, can just, it can be absorbed in its own true nature, which is in the essence. For Buddhism, there is no essence, uh, because if everything's momentary, where's the essence? Essence is something that remains. Uh, so there is no essence, it's momentary and interdependent. It doesn't exist on its own, it's always existing, in inter like Indra's net. If you think of a fishing net, you know, if you think of, a, of the knot of a net, the knot doesn't exist by itself. It's actually a, a mixture of this string and this string and this string and this string. It's interdependent. It it's, doesn't have an essential nature of its own. It's an interdependent, it's interdependent of four things feeding into it. It's a good analogy, Indra's net. So that would be a difference but what would for then the scholars, for the scholastics. But what, what would then be nirvana? That's an enlightened way of being in this interdependent momentary flow of things. You're not clinging onto the idea of an individual. The very thing that Patanjali is proposing, that you seek this autonomous individual, Buddhists would say that's that very thing that the yogis seek is the cause of samsara. So it's night and day. 
the very thing that the yogis claim as the goal of life, the Buddhists would say that clinging onto the idea that as an autonomous, separate individual, is the, the, the self, that's the cause of samsara. So that's why Patanjali has to spend a section of chapter 4 responding to that. See, the crux of the problem as we discussed today and as all along is the consciousness. Is consciousness. I mean, consciousness of course, in the Hindu or spiritual yeah. Eastern and of course, way. You know, and of course, some Hindu traditions would say there's also Ishvara, but, but okay. they have to debate that also with Jains and Mimamsas. But yes, but it's so consciousness. That, see, as a student of biology, or as we all know it, it's easy to understand uh, evolution of life and therefore the illusion of life force by natural selection, where does the consciousness fit in? How well, does it come about? Well, that's a problem that modern Hindus have to figure that out. Okay. This is one of the challenges of modernity, mm -hmm. that they, because there's no Darwinism in the Puranas or the epics. So this is a challenge, as it has been for Christian theologians, because for Christian theologians, the same thing, you know, that God made the forms. How did the forms come to be? Before Darwin, one of the arguments for God was, well, how do you explain the existence of forms? Sure. So Darwin knocked that one off, its legs, while well, the Puranas say Brahma created the forms. Mm -hmm. Brahma with the with long A. And um, it's a problem because karma, be it's not that you start off with a single cell organism and end up as a human. Uh, the karma theory requires you start as a human because a human makes karma. Ants and bugs and single celled molecules don't make karma. So a, kar a karma model, Buddhist, Hindu, and Jain, the traditionally pre-Darwin, propose that there has to be at some point a human birth. Now, how do you get around it? Well, you might, there's all kinds of ways. You could talk about other universes, but you have to work at it. You have to get on your, you know, thinking hat and think how are you going to sponsor and just like Christian theologians have to do. So it, it essentially remains a subjective experience rather than there's no objective uh, evidence uh, of the postulate of uh, all pervading, all expanding consciousness, right? I mean, at the end of the day, now we're changing, so not bracketing Darwin, at the end of the day, pramana, right? How do we know something? Okay, so we know it, Vedanta is going to say, okay, we know it because the Upanishads talk about it, but even Shankara will say that ultimately it has to be experience. Until you experience it, you don't know it. And that's where Patanjali makes his magnificent contribution. That's what I'm sorry. Patanjali makes his unique contribution because the Vedanta is about knowledge, it's about jnana, it's about systematizing the Upanishads, about saying, well, really it's all about Brahman, and this is, you know, the prana is really Brahman, and the akasha is, so it's really knowledge. The other sutra tradition, it's Patanjali says, Atta, Atak, you've done all that, that's not, that's not going to, you won't know it that way. Yoganushasanam, Chittavriti Naroda. So then, it's a, so it's about experience, and it makes it experiential, which makes it, in a sense, scientific. Not scientific in a, in, a, in, a, in a modern sense, but it makes it, 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 makes it something that's based on experience, that, that much at all. So, it, so that's why it's powerful. I think that's why it's very appealing also in the West. The very word experience uh, yeah. presupposes experiencer. Yes. So experience, so therefore the darshana, the drishi shakti, to use Patanjali's language, there's a drashtra, there's the seer. So that power of seeing can either see, Buddhists would say, well, Nagarjuna would say, if you have a seer who's seeing, well, you have to have a scene. You can't take out the scene. It's meaningless to say the seer is seeing 
Well, seeing what? I must be a seen. So that's why Nagarjuna is going to, Madhyamika is going to say, it's interdependent with this object. Yoga is going to say, well, you, you know, that may make logical sense if you frame it that way. But the seer can see, but, but that seeing doesn't have to have an external object. It can svarupa. It can be seeing its own nature. So, so that's experiential, yes. So at the end of the day, the yogis can say, if you want proof of this, if you want pramana, then do it. And that's kind of, there's not much you can say to that, is there? How are you going to answer that one? <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor uh, Bryant. That was a wonderful talk and uh, a very exciting Q&A session. Um, I'm particularly glad because this is actually the culminating talk in a series we started earlier this year, the Swami Abhedananda Lectures in Philosophy and Religion. We have had uh, Professor John Satamanil from Union Seminary, um, uh, Union Theological Seminary coming and speaking here, um, uh, Professor Janardhan Ganeri, uh, Professor um, Jack Stratton-Holly, um, Swami Chetananji gave a talk in the series, and now we have Professor Bryant. Um, my first introduction to him was through this book. He's too modest to mention it, and he speaks sort of self-deprecatingly about it, but this is a fantastic work. I, I thoroughly recommend it. You see, what he has mentioned is the Yoga Sutras have commentaries. Uh, we, I, I remember when we were novices in Belurmat, when we read the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, we read it with Vyasa Bhashya, which he has uh, mentioned. But there are other commentaries also. There is the commentary of uh, Vigyana Bhikshu, there is the uh, Bhoja Vritti, which he also mentioned. Now, the problem with these commentaries is they are a little abstruse and, and they're distant from us by a thousand years or more than that. Uh, and when you translate them, even, even if you translate them into English, it still remains very difficult to use for a practitioner. What he has done is, the, the beauty of this book is, that he has used all those commentaries, and then in very lucid uh, presentation, he has taken the important points which are very useful for clarifying concepts and putting into practice. So you have the benefit of the original Yoga Sutras, a simple explanation of the Yoga Sutras, and a commentarial tradition going back, I don't know, more than 2,000 years. Um, the benefit of all of that in a concentrated form. So I cannot, um, you know, I cannot praise it too highly because this is really, really wonderful. This is possibly the best book, not possibly, I'll drop the possibly. It is the best book, the best textbook on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras in the market. Um, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and you just search with his name. Nowadays it's very easy, Amazon Prime, right here. <laughs> One day, you have to wait two days at the most. So. <laughs> Uh, very soon we'll have drones coming with this book and dropping it over <laughs> at your doorstep. Um, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, Edwin F. Bryant. Um, another reason why I'm very happy about today's talk and having Professor Bryant here speaking about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali is Swami Vivekananda, who founded the Vedanta Society of New York, and all, after all, this is the first one of all the Vedanta societies. It's older than Belurmat itself. His first work, and maybe the best known work, is his own commentary on the Yoga Sutras of uh, Patanjali. This is called Raja Yoga. 
So this book was published from the uh, Vedanta Society of New York. Uh, in fact, he had more or less completed all his writing by 1895. It was the first book. I remember someone like J.D. Salinger writing about it 50 years later. He's writing that these two are classics, these two little classics, Raja Yoga and Karma Yoga. I think our American youth should carry them around in their pockets. J.D. Salinger is writing that. <laughs> um, so Swamiji's work is a work of spiritual genius. It's a standalone work. Uh, this is a textbook which you can use to you know, learn the entire tradition. The other thing I wanted to say was Professor Bryant is not just a professor. He is a sadhaka. Uh, he is a spiritual practitioner. So I'm saying things which he will never say himself <laughs> in public. But he's a spiritual practitioner. I know why that's, that's important for this audience especially to know that. And um, he is not a dry gyani. He's not a, an introverted yogi. Actually, it might surprise you to know, he's actually a bhakta. If you look at the list of his books, half of his books are about Krishna. Uh, literally, if you count, half the books are about Krishna. Um, that's Professor Bryant. The beautiful discussion here and so many questions which keep coming up in our classes here. Even the question about string theory. At first it seems <laughs> uh, uh, off-center, uh, but actually one of the most brilliant uh, researchers right now, Ed Witten, um, in Princeton, in the Institute of Advanced Studies, I found a little uh, clip on YouTube where Ed Witten is asked about consciousness and he says that I think consciousness will always remain a mystery from a scientific point of view. He says it will always remain a mystery we will certainly learn, learn more and more about the workings of the brain um, in the years ahead. But why these workings should be associated with something like consciousness, I don't think physics can explain. He, he says that, actually. Um, and the interviewer, you'll see it's funny, interviewer doesn't get it at all. He, the next question is, so you want it to remain a mystery? He says, no, I, what I say is that physics, for physics it will remain a mystery. And then he goes on to ask, so do you think beauty produces consciousness? He's completely off track, the interviewer. <laughs> Ed Witten gets the, gets the whole question about the first person experience, the subjective nature of consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness, and so on. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to... Professor Bryant for making time. You don't know how busy he is. We were trying to schedule this talk much earlier, but it's easy to understand because all the yoga studios, they want somebody like Professor Bryant to come in and talk about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So the talk in Bahamas, in the Shivananda Yoga Ashram, right? So in many places, and it's very difficult to get a date from him, but we managed it and he's here with us today, and we are very, very thankful to him. Though he did get wet in the process, coming from Penn Station. I thought he would take the subway from Penn Station to here, but he walked all the way from Penn Station. I'm an Englishman. You're an Englishman, yes. It's, it's, it's home weather. <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you very much, and do join us for uh, Prashad downstairs. Thank you.